0: Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, if you are visiting with us, it is our practice here to preach through whole books of the Bible, and we've been, I've been preaching through Joshua. We've come to the final chapter this morning, so let's begin by reading this passage of Scripture together. Joshua 24, this is the word of the Lord. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham, from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt and then, and I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it and afterward I brought you out. And I took them into your, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land. And I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand, and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and of olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in your sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed, And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you. After having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our souls this morning. Early on in the Enlightenment, many scholars of the Bible became skeptical of its truthfulness and of its accuracy. It was commonplace among scholars to assume that the stories in the Old Testament were mythical, like the stories contained in other ancient documents. Many of the people and the places recorded in the biblical narratives were just simply assumed to have never even existed. However, when the discipline of modern archaeology developed, especially in the early 1900s, it began to poke holes in that assumption. Because over and over again, archaeologists have discovered evidence confirming that people mentioned in the Old Testament really existed. And that events described in the Old Testament really took place. Indeed, though it is rarely acknowledged, let alone publicized, for instance, by the media, archaeology has repeatedly provided astonishing confirmation of the Old Testament's historicity. One uh, tangential example of this was when archaeologists, having recently discovered the capital city of the ancient Hittite Empire, was excavating some of the ruins of Hittite cities and they discovered cuneiform tablets that turned out to be treaty documents. And several of these treaty documents contained a specific kind of treaty between the more powerful suzerain kingdom of the Hittites and the weaker vassal nations that they ruled over. And the treaties in these tablet documents have come to be called by scholars now, suzerain-vassal treaties, because they share certain elements in common. They each began with a preamble in which the powerful suzerain nation was identified. That was followed by a historical prologue, reviewing all that the suzerain nation had done for the vassal nation. And then the terms of the treaty were laid out which primarily included the obligations of the vassal nation toward the more powerful suzerain nation. Then, we see in these treaty documents that witnesses were called. In these documents, it was often the various deities of the nations that were called to bear witness to the treaty. And then finally, blessings and curses were enumerated telling how the vassal nation would be rewarded for keeping the covenant and how they would be punished for breaking it. Now, when these treaty documents were discovered, scholars of the Old Testament found them intriguing for two primary reasons. First, these particular tablets were actually dated to around the time that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And second, the suzerain vassal treaty structure found in these tablets was also found in the book of Deuteronomy. In other words, it appears that when the Lord established his covenant with Israel, somewhere in the 1400s BC, he utilized a treaty structure that was commonly used in that day for treaties between powerful kings and their vassal nations. What's interesting is that these very same elements are reflected here in Joshua 24 as well. In other words, Joshua 24 has the same structure as a typical 15th century B.C. suzerain vassal treaty. Only this time, a brand new covenant isn't being made, rather the original covenant that God had made with his people Israel, the covenant reflected in the book of Deuteronomy, was being renewed at a key turning point in Israel's history. Now let me show you what I mean by walking with you through this final chapter of the book of Joshua, Joshua 24. Now the scene is set by the author in verse 1. So if you look there again, he says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. Now, remember, this is the third and final of Joshua's three speeches, three addresses to the nation that are recorded in these last three chapters of Joshua. First, he addressed the two and a half tribes in, verse, in chapter 22. Second, he addressed the leaders of the nation in, verse, in chapter 23. And now, third and finally, he addressed, as it says, all the tribes of Israel along with their leaders in chapter 24. Now, Joshua's first two addresses were given before the tabernacle where it had, it had been set up at a place called Shiloh. This final address to the entire nation took place at a different place location called Shechem. And is actually the location of an earlier covenant renewal that was made back in chapter 8. It may have even been chosen because there was two famous mountains right there where people could stand on the slopes and look down and hear someone speaking at the center. Perhaps that why they chose it now. Now, starting in verse 3, we see the structure of a suzerain vassal treaty begin to unfold. So first we have the preamble, verse 2, where the, most, the more powerful suzerain party is introduced. So there you look at verse 2, it says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. So Joshua, here functioning as a prophet like Moses had before him, spoke on behalf of of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. So Yahweh is the all-powerful suzerain king in this covenant arrangement. Second, we see a historical prologue, verses 2 through 13. And what we see is that it recounts for us the history of the relationship between the two parties in the covenant, especially it tells us all the things that Yahweh, the suzerain, had done for Israel the vassal. And in this case, Yahweh the Lord himself recounts to his people the history of his dealings with them and their ancestors through Joshua his mouthpiece, the prophet. Now, this history, of course, isn't comprehensive, but it was extensive. So in verses 2 through 5, the Lord referred to Israel's ancestral origins, went back to the very beginning. He spoke in the third person because these were things that had happened before they were around. He spoke of their forefather, Abraham, whom he had called out of his homeland beyond the Euphrates River, Ur of the Chaldeans, and told them to sojourn in the land of Canaan. And then he mentioned the birth of Abraham's son, Isaac, and then of his grandson, Jacob, and how he had given him many descendants, and how they ended up down in Egypt. After this, the Lord began recounting Israel's history as a nation. And we see this in verses 6 through 13. And the pronouns change from them and they and their to you in the plural because now he's going to be speaking about things that they had experienced firsthand, at least some of them. He began with how he had delivered them out of Egypt and brought them safely through the Red Sea, destroying Pharaoh's army behind them. He, had, he then recounted how he had shepherded them through the wilderness for a long time and brought them to the edge of Canaan and how along the way he had Given them victory over those two Amorite kings living just across the Jordan, Sihon and Og, and how he had protected them from Balak trying to hire the sorcerer Balaam to place a curse on them, such that Balaam ended up blessing them instead. Finally, he described how he enabled them to conquer the Canaanites living in the land and to take possession of the land for themselves according to his ancient promise to Abraham. It was a brief history of Yahweh's relationship with Israel from the very beginning all the way up to the events that are now recorded in chapter 24 of Joshua. Now, there are a number of things to notice about this historical prologue that we have here in verses 2 through 13. It's told, first of all, in such a way as to emphasize certain things about the Lord's relationship with Israel. First and foremost... It is designed to emphasize all that Yahweh had done for his people. So if you look throughout phrases like, I took, I gave, I sent, I brought, I destroyed, I delivered. It just permeates the whole section. The Lord is explaining to Israel how they owed everything from their very existence to all that they had now to him, to the Lord and what he had done for them. It was the Lord also who had initiated and brought about their inception as a nation from the loins of Abraham. As you see in verse 3, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. In other words, I gave you birth as a nation. And this was entirely gracious because there was nothing about Abraham which sort of made him a an attractive prospect for this. Rather, the text tells us, Yahweh tells the people that they were idolaters, like those around them. So, verse 2, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now, in addition to this, the Lord made clear in this history that their reception of the promised blessings was based upon his sovereign choice of them, not their choice of him. Notice, this is what is emphasized in verse 4 when he says, And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. The people of Israel were the descendants of Jacob, whom God had chosen over his twin brother Esau, even before they were Born While they were still in the womb, before they had done anything good or bad, God had chosen them. Finally, the Lord told this history in such a way as to emphasize that everything Israel had accomplished and attained was by his power, not their own. So, of their exodus out of bondage in Egypt, the Lord said, verse 7, Your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. When they were attacked by those two great kings, Sihon and Og, he reminded them in verse 8, they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. When Balak, the king of Moab, tried to hire Balaam to curse them, the Lord says, verse 10, I would not listen to Balaam, indeed he blessed you, so I delivered him out of your hand or delivered you out of his hand. And then when they finally entered Canaan and they tried to wrest it from the hands of those seven powerful nations living there, the Lord reminded them, verses 11 and 12, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. It was not by your sword or by your bow. In other words, as the Israelites stood before Joshua that day, the Lord wanted them to remember that all the blessings they now enjoyed had been bestowed upon them as a gracious gift by Yahweh's power alone, not their own. Verse 13, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Next and third. This historical prologue is followed by the stipulations of the covenant. Verses 14-15. through 15. So here, the obligations of the vassal Israel toward the suzerain Yahweh are enumerated. It's worth noting how Joshua began there in verse 13, 14. There he said, Now, therefore... In other words... Israel's responsibility towards God were based upon and in response to everything he had just got done telling them that the Lord had done for them throughout their history. This is all that God has done for you? Now, therefore, in light of that, in response to that, then he lays out the responsibilities. What were the responsibilities toward the Lord that Israel owed to him as their covenant suzerain? Well, Joshua summarized, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Once again, don't you see it? Their obligations to Yahweh began in their heart. You know, previously we had seen that Joshua commanded them to love the Lord with all their heart. Here he says to fear the Lord, reverence the Lord. And the two go together, don't they? Israel's covenant obligation to the Lord began with a heart of reverence and devotion or love toward him. And then Joshua explained how that inward fear and love for Yahweh was to be expressed outwardly in their lives. He said that they were to serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Now, the key term here is serve. In fact, if you follow the rest of the text, you're going to see it pop up again and again. So in the first part, in the historical prologue, it's all about, I did this, I did this, I did this. Now it's all about you serve, you serve, serve the Lord or serve idols. Are you going to serve someone? Serve the Lord. It's used 15 times in the remainder of the chapter. Now, in this context, of course, the service that Israel owed was keeping the covenant law. Of course, that covenant law, which was summarized so well in the Ten Commandments, and this obedience was to be done, as Joshua says here, in sincerity and faithfulness, which was really, to capture the essence of it, was that their obedience was to be complete and without compromise. The Lord required Israel to be totally devoted to him. It should also be noticed that the service the Lord required of Israel was juxtaposed with the opposite, with service of idols. So after telling them to fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness, Joshua then went on to say, you can see it, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt And serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father served in the regions beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. You see, the nations around them served many gods, but not so with Israel, because Yahweh is. The one true God. There isn't any other God, and therefore he demanded their exclusive fear, their exclusive service to try and worship other gods, do you see, as well as him. Oh, we'll worship Yahweh as part of a pantheon of gods, just to cover our bases. To him, that was spiritual adultery. It was akin to a married man loving other women in addition to his wife. So Joshua told them they must choose between serving the Lord or serving idols because they could not do both. This was the stipulation of their covenant with God. Now, it's worth stopping here, isn't it? And just taking note of how these two elements of Israel's covenant renewal, the historical prologue and the stipulations of their responsibilities, how they remind us of important truths about our own covenant relationship with the Lord in Jesus Christ. So first of all, the history of our own relationship with God, just like Israel is all about what He has done for us. And just like Israel, our own redemption was initiated by His choice, accomplished by His power, and granted by His grace not by our own strength or because of any merit that he saw in us. It's all of God from beginning to end. In fact, the New Testament has a lot of historical recountings of our own history in relation to God as Christians. We see that on a number of occasions, and whenever it tells this history, it always emphasizes these very points, doesn't it? So, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 or God says, it says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God initiated our redemption because he chose us in Christ before we ever existed. Just like he called Abraham, who had, whose ancestors lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. Or consider Colossians 2, 21-22, where Paul said, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So God was motivated to redeem us out of his free favor toward those who deserved his judgment and nothing else apart from any merit, any worth on our part. Or consider Titus 3 four through six, which says, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So God redeemed us, according to his choice, by his free favor, and through his power in Christ the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit without any help from us. And all this reminds us that the credit for our redemption, just like with Israel, must go entirely to God and not to us. I think of Paul's famous words in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. He says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Next we also notice that the stipulations of the old covenant laid out for Israel in our text by Joshua they reflect a pattern which is true for us as well in the new covenant. You know Joshua told Israel how to respond to all that God had done for them he said now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So also, you remember how Paul told us how we should respond to God's gracious redemption in Christ. You remember Ephesians 1-3, through 3, he tells us all that Christ had done for us. And then in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, I urge you, therefore, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And again, Romans 12, verse 1, where chapters 1 through 11 is all about what God has done for us in Christ. In chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In summary, We are to respond to God's grace toward us in Christ by loving him above all else and expressing our exclusive covenant love through faithful obedience to his command from the heart through Christ. And just as God required of Israel, so also Christ requires of us exclusive covenant love. If we're going to serve him, we can't serve idols too. We must love Christ before all else. And nothing in the world can take precedence over him in our hearts. Whether our spouse, our children, our job, our possessions, or even our very life itself. Do you remember how Jesus so famously articulated this? Luke 14, 26 Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds this life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Every Christian must consider the cost and be willing to pay it. If you call yourself a Christian, but but think that you can split your highest loyalty between Christ and family, work, money, pleasure, worldly success, approval and acceptance by your friends, you are mistaken. You are self-deceived. God will tolerate no rivals for the throne of his people's hearts. To split your loyalties between him and any other. Do you see? It's to commit spiritual adultery against him. It has to be repented of of you or you are lost. But to love God with all your heart and to serve him only. It's not ultimately a sacrifice, is it? It's the source of true and lasting satisfaction and joy. You have been brought into a new covenant relationship with the God of the universe, who is an overflowing fountain of goodness and blessing through Jesus Christ. You remember the psalmist's famous words regarding Yahweh? You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So in verses 14-15, Joshua faced the Israelites with their covenant obligations toward the Lord as their suzerain king. And he called them to choose whether they would fulfill these or not. Then did you notice Joshua led the way? He stepped forward himself and he said at the end of verse 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. By the way, This is what every good and godly leader in the new covenant community, the church, will do as well. They will call people to respond to God's grace in Christ and his powerful work in their lives by serving him alone. And then they will commit themselves to do the same, to lead by example. Every leader in the church should be able to say with the Apostle Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, you can ask my wife and kids, as a leader in the church, we're not going to do that perfectly by any means, but we will be willing to lead the way and we'll at least be headed in the right direction as Jesus helps us by his indwelling Holy Spirit. In verses 16 to 24 now, the people agree to abide by the stipulations of the covenant. Only we see that there is this awkward back and forth between them and Joshua. In verses 16 through 18, the people affirm that they will serve the Lord and not idols because he is their God. But then in verses 19 through 20, you see that Joshua responds to their commitment by saying, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Now this response by Joshua is, as I said, a bit awkward, isn't it? Israel agrees to serve the Lord. Joshua denies that they will be able to do so. Now what is going on here? It seems to me, that Joshua has learned a thing or two about the nation of Israel over his lifetime. He knew, as Moses had so often articulated, that Israel was a stiff-necked people, a stubborn people. He had watched their fathers repeatedly forsake the Lord and perish in the desert for their rebellion. And he had already seen this generation begin to manifest some of the same characteristics by complaining back in chapter 17, uh, our portions aren't big enough. The Canaanites are too strong for us to drive out. Please give us more land. On the flip side, he knew the character of God that his perfect holiness made him intensely jealous with a holy jealousy for the faithfulness of his covenant people. He knew that Israel was going to be prone to forsake the Lord and that the Lord would punish them severely for it. So Joshua's concern here seems to be that Israel, it's like he's taking them by the jowls and he's saying, do you really understand what you're getting into? I don't think you do. They had so boldly declared that they would obey the stipulations of the, that the Lord required. And he's recognizing, I don't think you get it. Dale Ralph Davis, one commentary. I think he captured the force of Joshua's response well when he said, he summarized it this way. Quote, don't lightly mouth your profession of faith, Joshua is saying. Don't you realize the sort of God you're dealing with? He is a holy, jealous God. You don't dare come to him thinking, though it makes him sad to see the way we live, he will always say, I forgive. Yahweh is not soft, cuddly Santa in the sky who drools over easy decisions during invitation hymns, he says. Joshua seeks to put down that blathering self-confidence that makes emotional commitment rather than shutting its mouth and counting the cost, end quote. By the way, Christian, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and were baptized into his church, do you realize we entered into a covenant relationship with this same God? That he is no less holy and jealous now? than he was then, and that we must not take our relationship with him any less seriously than Joshua warned Israel to do? Do you realize that idolatry and all sin must be repented of quickly, while love of Christ and obedience to him must be pursued with a vigor and intensity? Because he has purchased us with his blood, and therefore he loves us deeply, and he is intensely jealous for our faithfulness to him. Do you realize that, Christian? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're considering whether the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and whether you should believe in Christ and begin following him. Know that Jesus is urgently calling you to do that out of a heart of intense concern for your soul because you're lost and perishing until you come to him for salvation. But... He wants you to know what you're getting into. He wants you to appreciate the cost of discipleship that you must not only trust him to save you through his death on the cross for your sins, but you must also repent, forsake your wicked ways and submit yourself to him as king for the rest of your life. But sinner, if you do so, you will find that his yoke is easy. And that he will give you rest for your souls. So I urge you to come to Christ this morning. Well, despite Joshua's warning there in verses 19 through 20, the people reiterate their commitment to serve the Lord, verses 21 through 24. And then this is followed by the next two elements of the covenant, verses 25 through 28. We'll just cover them briefly. Fourth, in record of the agreement. And we see that here as well. Verse 26, there it says, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And fifth, the witnesses to the covenant are identified. Verses 26 and 27. In this case, as you already saw, there's this large stone monument which is erected as a witness. And so you see in verse 27, it says, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against us, lest you deal falsely with your God. And then, as for that last element of any suzerain vassal treaty, the blessings and the curses, it's interesting here, rather than being enumerated explicitly at the end, they're sort of implied throughout. So, verses 12 and 13 imply that if they were faithful to the Lord, they would keep their lands, their cities, the vineyards and orchards which God had given them in the land of Canaan. Meanwhile, they're warned. Verse 20, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you, having done good to you. Blessings, curses. Finally, the entire book of Joshua is brought to a fitting close with the announcements of three major events, which really mark the end of a whole era in history. Joshua died and was buried, verses 29 and 30. Joseph's bones, which were brought up by Israel out of Egypt at the Exodus, were buried at last in verse 32, just as Joseph had requested out of faith in God's promise, way back in Genesis 50. And finally, Eliezer the high priest died and was buried in verse 33. Now together, these events leave the reader, I think, with two things in mind. On the one hand, the Lord had been faithful to keep his promise to Israel. Joseph's bones were buried in the land that he was hoping God would give them. On the other hand, there's a question. Would Israel be faithful to God once Joshua, Eliezer were dead and gone? We're given a hint in verse 31 where it says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. That's positive on the one hand. Israel served the Lord all the days of that generation. But the very way it's said implies that that kind of faithfulness died with them. And that is, of course, what the next book in the Bible tells you happened, isn't it? The book of Judges. And this provides us with, I think, a nice transition into what will just be our last reflection upon this chapter and upon the book of Joshua as a whole. You know, this chapter, it's all about Joshua leading the nation to renew their covenant with God before he died. And it utilized the structure of a suzerain vassal treaty common in that day. And the nation now recommitted themselves to be faithful to serve the Lord instead of idols. Why? Because he was their God who had redeemed them and blessed them just as he had promised. And yet, think about it. The very fact that Joshua felt the burning need to lead them in this covenant renewal demonstrated his concern that they might be prone to break that covenant. Indeed, he seems to articulate that concern, as I mentioned so explicitly. Verse 20, you are not able to serve the Lord. Why? Why did Joshua doubt that Israel would be able to keep their covenant commitments to God over time? You know, the answer, I think, is implied in verse 23. Look at that verse again. There he told the nation, put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. You know, the problem was, is that as the Lord had said to Moses about the nation, way back in Exodus 32, verse 9, he said, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. In other words, while the nation remained faithful to the Lord all the days of Joshua and certain leaders of, the gener- of that generation, ultimately, their hearts were a problem. Their hearts remained stubborn and, and rebellious so that they would quickly turn away from the Lord once those leaders were gone. And indeed, the next book in the Bible, the book of Judges, tells us that's exactly what happened. And this uneasiness which the book of Joshua ends with, about Israel's ability to keep their covenant with God, do you see that this anticipates the need for a new covenant that would be based on better promises? And it's very interesting that many centuries later, at a time when Israel was disobeying the covenant of God and was about to be kicked out of the land, but the prophet Jeremiah announced the coming of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 40, 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Here we can see that what the old covenant didn't provide, the new covenant would. Permanent forgiveness of all their sins, an obedient heart, guaranteeing an enduring relationship with Yahweh. And of course, you know that the New Testament announces the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, whose coming was foretold throughout the pages of this Old Testament, has come to establish this new covenant through his death and his resurrection. He told his disciples at the Last Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, he said, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And you say, what is this covenant? And he tells you, he cites Jeremiah 31, indicating Jesus has brought that covenant to pass. The promise of full and permanent forgiveness of sins, secured for those who are in covenant with him, through his once-for-all sacrifice upon the cross. And the promise of an obedient heart is secured by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit whom Christ has sent into the hearts of his new covenant people. And the gospel of Jesus Christ announces that whoever believes in him, Jew and Gentile, are received into his new covenant people and granted these better blessings. It's a gracious gift. And the most glorious thing of all, is that, unlike the old covenant, that covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, the new covenant will never be broken. Because first and foremost, Christ has fulfilled all its conditions. He has earned our right standing with God forever through his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection. And at that very same time, he has secured and guaranteed our regeneration of heart in this life and our resurrection unto glory at the end of the age. So the Apostle Paul can famously say, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So you see, while Joshua called the Israelites to faithfulness to God under the old covenant, knowing they would fail to do so after he was gone, the scriptures call us to be faithful to God under the new covenant with full confidence that we will do so through the perfect faithfulness of Christ. I think of Jude's words. To close out his letter. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. So, as we come to the end of the book of Joshua, we should find it at last pointing us forward to Jesus Christ, who is the greater Joshua, who has accomplished a greater conquest over sin and death and the devil, who has established a new covenant with us, which is based on better promises, promises of permanent forgiveness and regeneration of heart, and who is bringing us into a better country, the new creation, where we will enter into God's rest in a full and final way. And then it is in light of these glorious, joy-filling truths that we now heed the words of Joshua to Israel at the end of this book, and we own them for ourselves. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. May the Holy Spirit help us to be faithful to our suzerain king, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the bonds of the new covenant, that he has graciously established with us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful book of Joshua that you have given to us. We thank you that you had it written down so that it would be preserved for us, as Paul said, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We thank you how it teaches us truths, both old and points us To the new truths that we have been given in Christ, to help us understand His person and work even better, we pray that as we come to the end of this book, our hearts would have the truths of this book sealed upon them. That we be that we remember what you have said to us. That we would take it to heart. That we would learn from it. We pray that you would deepen our knowledge of Christ that we become more acquainted with him and love him more fully. But we know that only your Holy Spirit can do this work of renewing our minds through your word. And we pray it, that you would do so for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.